0: Hello, and welcome to LitCast, a podcast presented by Publishers Weekly. LitCast is a series of conversations with some of today's top authors. I'm Marcia Nelson, reviews editor for Publishers Weekly. I'm talking today with Tracy Grote, whose newest novel is Maggie Bright. Today's LitCast is sponsored by the publisher Tyndale House. Tracy Grote is a darn good writer. Don't take my word for that. The Evidence is two Christie Awards that she has won for writing historical fiction. The Christie's honor the best fiction written from a Christian worldview. The starred reviews that Tracy has gotten from Publishers Weekly are just bonus points. Tracy lives near Grand Rapids, Michigan, used to work as an accounts payable clerk, and she started her writing career at age eight. So let's talk about any or all of the above, and welcome, welcome, Tracy. Thank you so much. It's great to be with you, Marsha. Great, great. Let's talk about Maggie Bright, because Maggie Bright is not a person. Maggie Bright is a boat. Yes. Why a boat? How did this come about? Tell us about the inspiration for your newest novel. Well, I think the
1: inspiration for writing Maggie Bright uh, came when I was actually writing um, a book called Flame of Resistance. Flame of Resistance is a World War II novel about the spearhead action of D-Day. It's about Pegasus Bridge. If the Allies hadn't taken and held Pegasus Bridge, then Rommel's German Panzer Division would have crossed the bridge and flanked the entire operation. And if anybody has seen Saving Private Ryan, then the hell that those men went through on, on that day would have been completely uh, amplified with panzers running down the beach. Mm-hmm. So the, the Allies had to take and hold um, Pegasus Bridge. Now, in, in the course of studying and, and uh, doing research for, for that novel, I came across a story about Dunkirk, and, you know, the more that I read about this, I was thinking, why why haven't I ever heard about this? The entire war would have changed had the British Army not been rescued right. during those nine critical days before, uh, you know, America was even involved in the war. So um, the more that I read about it, the more I was intrigued. And then I, I found out different things that attached to Dunkirk. And one of them was the quite remarkable um, incident of King George VI calling his entire nation to prayer, to a day of prayer, right, when things right. were at their worst for uh, the British uh, expeditionary force. And, and that was the first time a monarch in England's history had called the nation together as one to pray that floored me, you know, that, that in itself floored me. And then the things that unfolded after yes. that is absolutely um, remarkable. Um, uh-huh. Uh-huh. There are so many different things, so many different factors that just grabbed me, and, and that's kind of what inspired me to write it. I wanted well. other people to know.
0: I found your author's note in the book about um, the retreat at Dunkirk really helpful. And I was also so intrigued by that event, which I had never heard of in, in, in my world history uh, knowledge and classes, that I went and looked up much more about it. Let me ask you specifically about the, the way in which you bring this to beautiful and terrible life. And that's specifically the character of Captain Jacobs. He really, really haunted me, and now let me let me explain, and you can say more, Captain Jacobs, as readers will discover, is a brain injured soldier who is among the retreating British forces, and his injury leaves him incapable of of saying anything other than the poetry of John Milton. How did you dream this up? You know, it was,
1: that was like a plum assignment. I have no idea how it came about. Uh Um, Actually, I think I do. I was reading Paradise Lost. I was beginning to read it for, oh, you know, just, I have um, my own list of, you know, read these books before you die, you know, type of thing. And, uh, Paradise Lost has always been on the list. And I thought, you know, I really, I really want to read this. I really need to make myself read this. So I did. And as I'm reading it, you know, Marsh, I'm going to be honest. I don't have a clue how it came together. Huh. <laughs> but um, I saw such beauty in in so much of of what I was reading. Yes. And then I began to see so many similarities. For example, at the end of the book, when Missus Shrewsbury is looking to the south. And she says, you shatterer, you shall not prevail. Yes. Um, you know, I, I, I'm channeling Milton on that one. You know, yeah. that's, you know, I'm I'm just feeling the leftover of walking with Milton through Paradise Lost and seeing so many similarities through what the, the British, you know, f- through what the army went through. I don't know how it happened. It just did. And I had a ball. I just had a ball doing it. Well, you're talking to
0: somebody who took a whole course in Milton in graduate school <laughs> in English, so it really stood out for me because of its 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 power and its its poignancy, and that leads me to a really logical next question. You write about war a lot. Your three most recent novels have been set in wartime. Two are in World War II, and then the Civil War. That's hard. Why? What? What? That, did, what? You. What is that about?
1: That, you know, I think I finally put a finger on, on that very, very question. And uh, it was actually through Eric Leonard, who um, was the chief of interpretation at the uh, National Andersonville Historic Park in Georgia. And he said something very curious. He said, I'm drawn to mass atrocity. And and I I went wow I, I that's he uh, he said it for me, uh-huh. um, I think it started when, when I um when I wrote a book called Madman, which is another bit of internal atrocity, that this that this poor demon possessed guy went through, and I think I'm you know I'm, when I was a kid I ate up everything I could on the Holocaust, and and I think it's because. Um, I, you know, there's that thing inside me that um, it's kind of a twofold thing. I want to see where where did light shine in such horrible, deep darkness? And then the second thing is, would I have done the same thing that I see so many, you know, you dig up all of these amazing stories of how people stood up against Darkness and through darkness, and I'm I'm attracted to the question of would I have done the same thing?
0: Uh huh. When you do your research, because you write historical novels, talk about that. Is it painstaking? Is it emotionally difficult? Is it logistically, you know, challenging? What's involved in your historical research?
1: Well, first, there's the idea that comes. You know, when I when I come to an event in history, and I get amazed by the event. And then mm-hmm. I want to insert myself in the event to, you know, and it's it's a ball, you know, to be able to live through that event through um, through studying, through uh, coming at that event through many different viewpoints. For example, uh, the Sentinels of Andersonville. I was attracted to that story because I was 12 years old in channel surfing. And, you know, back then there's like five channels. Yeah. And yeah. I came across a story where. Uh, Captain Kirk, who was my hero at the time, uh, he was he was in the Civil War garb and he was in a courtroom. I thought, oh, cool! You know, he's been transported, you know, to some planet, you know, by Q or whatever, and dressed up in you know this cool garb. But actually, I found out that it was the film was called The Andersonville Trial, directed okay. by uh, George C. Scott. And you know, I found within that. I was just attracted to, you know, what is this guy talking about? And then he was talking about a a woman who had been turned away. Um, She drove four farm wagons full of food up to the door of Andersonville prison, and she was turned away. And at 12 years old, I was completely horrified. And so I saw the point of view of Andersonville from that young woman. I saw the point of view of Andersonville from this prosecuting attorney And then as I began to study Andersonville, I saw it from the point of view of being inside the prison. Um, I read hundreds of accounts, uh, well, over 100 accounts of men who had been in the prison and then I wanted to know what was it like to be outside of the prison. You know, so I, I try to take one event and I try to look at it from many different facets. So that invo- involves pulling together as much research as I can. I start out with a general history. For the Civil War, I start out with oh, okay. basic Civil War history books and I backed way up. And I find that when I approach event, an event, I have to back way up, mm-hmm. because I need to understand the, the, what's going on in the culture of the day, um, what's going on you know politically, what's going on you know in different ways. Arnold Toynbee, the British historian, talked about this. He said that that character is formed as a result of a person's heredity and then his response to his environment. And so to form my characters who are going to be peopling my historical event, I study the, the event, I study the character, I study the, the culture, and from that, I get, I get my character ideas. And then I also have site research. I love to go places because, you know, quite often the, the land, the, the topography, it just speaks differently than, you know, Hudsonville, Michigan.
0: Yes, you know. <laughs> so, did did you go to France to to research um, Flame of Resistance and and uh, Maggie Bright? Yes, I did.
1: Oh, um, okay. I was. Um, and it was it was great. Um, I went with my best friend, and uh, she took a million pictures. And um, we went. We were on both sides. We were actually in Dunkirk, and there's this marvelous little museum uh, right in Dunkirk, and. I ended up seeing some, you know, I thought I'd seen just about every photograph that there is to see on Dunkirk. And there I encountered, from a French point of view, different pictures, absolutely shattering pictures. I I, I ended up just standing there taking pictures of the pictures. It was just just amazing. And then um, we went to the Imperial War Museum in London. And there, my research took a surprising turn. Um, I went to to go to the the Dunkirk exhibit, which is yes. open all the time, except the day that I happened to go and I was like, "Are you kidding me oh dear and but but then you know it just absolutely amazes me how um, site visits yield the unexpected, and uh-huh. they happen to have an exhibit about the t four program, which was going on. In the 1930s, Hitler's euthanasia program for the mentally ill. For oh. yes, and that's where that angle came from. Oh, um, okay, okay. And Maggie Bright, right, and and, and that's where. Uh, so so, boy, that was a book in, its, in itself. I thought, boy, I could write a book about this, you know. And but anyway, it just it absolutely fascinated me, and I thought I I've got to work this in somehow. It's just it just felt so part of the story, part right. of why Britain was fighting.
0: Right. Um, There's a bunch of plot threads, um, but there's both the the British Expeditionary Force retreat um, to Dunkirk, and then there's this. Other set of of uh, uh, plot threads um, being woven in in England that involves the response to to Hitler's euthanasia program and where does the the American cartoonist um, fit in? How did you figure out that part of the of the plot of of Maggie Bright? Because he's he ends up being such a central character. That's that's a really
1: good point. Um, my agent said to me a long time ago that quite often Americans can be pretty xenophobic in their reading. Um, it, it, and that's not so in, you know, other parts of the world, not as much. And that kind of stuck with me. And I thought, you know, if, if I'm going to be writing about about this amazing incident that happened in Dunkirk, I needed an American there. Okay. I need, you know, I, and, and so I wanted to give Americans a point of view through Murray Vance so that Americans can take part in the event that is unfolding, and see what did America do at that time. You know, where, where were we positioned? How were we feeling? You know, what were we thinking of this withdrawal? And, you know, it happened so fast, you know, we, we didn't have a lot of um, time to, to think, to respond, but there were, there were, in fact, a couple of Americans who were involved in the Dunkirk Rescue, so um, there was, there was okay. an accountant, there was, um, let's see, there was an accountant, there was another Wall Street guy. I'm not sure if they happened to be in England at the time and then just, you know, just joined forces, just jumped in a boat and, okay. and went across the channel. I'm not exactly sure, but the fact that Americans took part in some small measure in that rescue was a bit of a foreshadowing to our eventual involvement in World War II. Okay.
0: So to answer your question, I just, I wanted, you know, an American viewpoint. Sure, sure. I'm going to ask you one question that is unlike anything, any other question. How do you, because <laughs> you get so involved in, in the research and, and, mm-hmm. and, and are powered by a personal question, how do your books change you? Boy, we could sit here for an hour, Martha, <laughs> or I, two I <laughs> or
1: three, and we could talk about how the books change. Wow. Um <laughs> in so many myriad ways. Um, you know, I think I think about Madman. Madman was a book that I first I think noticed a change. And that is um when I was studying uh demonic possession, you know, which is no trifling subject to study, um I, I began, you know, I, I needed to read oh boy, all kinds of Uh, books about, uh, understand, I mean, you know, for, for one thing, I'm really into interviewing people. Well, how do you interview somebody who has been, you know, set free by demons? I didn't even know how to get the word out on that. You know, how do, how do I do that? So, um, so I actually did get the word out, you know, through a different, a couple of different churches and I ended up, you know, interviewing some people. For example, I, I, I met a woman at a coffee shop and, um, she had been delivered of 20 demons. And you know I'm a writer, so so I you know I, I withhold I try, I thought I with, withheld judgment pretty well you know, uh-huh. and you know when some when this person told me okay yes she's willing to meet with you, um, you can meet at this uh, particular this is gosh long time ago, I want to say early early two thousand I, I didn't realize that I had such um, a preconceived idea mm-hmm. of who I thought. <laughs> Would be would be possessed of demons, and and I and then and then set free. So I'm I'm waiting at this coffee shop, and I'm you know looking at these people who are coming in, and you know I I'm just categorizing them. I'm thinking, no, you know I and I didn't know I was I was completely subconscious, you know, and and I'm looking at these, no, you know that person couldn't have been possessed. That person could have been. Well, a woman comes up huh. to my to my um, table, and she says, "Are are you Tracy Gro?" And I was like. Um, yeah, and she said, well, I'm so-and-so, and I, Marsh, I just about fell over. This woman was a model. She was yeah. absolutely, stunningly beautiful, and and it was just absolutely ridiculous of me to look at her, and it, I was dumbfounded. I thought, there's no way you could have been possessed. It's so stupid, but, you know, that was um, one thing that changed in me, one tiny little thing yes. of, <laughs> of of assumption. And then another thing um, that, that went uh, quite a bit deeper is that as I was uh, researching Mad Men and as I was writing Mad Men and then when I finished Mad Men, I realized after a time that I wasn't afraid of things anymore. I just didn't have fears of certain things or whatever. And I realized it's because I walked with, with this character for so long and then when Jesus came and set this person free, it was such a complete deliverance that I think something settled down inside of me and said, things are going to be okay. Because this this man, this Jesus, look what he did for this, this cardis, um, this madman. And uh, so, so that's one thing I point to that, I feel changed when I grapple with a particular subject. For Sentinels of though, what changed me is I realized how much I need to be doing things within my own sphere of influence. If it's just as simple as bringing a can of, of food to my right. food pantry consistently, right. then, um, then, then I need to do that. So
0: I, I'm telling you, we could talk for 10 days about this. <laughs> um, and I, I'd like to, but I suspect we should respect everyone's <laughs> time all around. So oh, let's have, let's continue this conversation <laughs> later um, because okay. we, we, need we need to, to press on. Yeah. And okay. and thank you so very much. So very much, Tracy Grote. It's thank a pleasure. You. Maggie Bright, Tracy Grote's. Latest novel will be published in May by Tyndale House, the sponsor of today's podcast. I'm Marcia Nelson from Publishers Weekly. Thanks for listening.